message is part of the preaching ministry of Berlin Baptist Church in Sally, South Carolina. We pray God's richest blessings for you as you study His Word. Today's message is a little bit unique. Uh, we're continuing on through Zechariah, and we're coming across today yet another prophecy, a messianic prophecy, a, a pretty well-known one at that. And so before I introduce the Scripture just briefly and then read the whole passage, I wanted to read just these two verses by way of introduction. And so in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, this is what we'll read. See if this sparks any thoughts in your mind. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Do you remember a day when someone entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey? There it is right there, 500 years before it happened. 540 years before it happened. Just yet another instance of Scripture confirming Scripture with actual events. James Boyce wrote about that passage, Few Messianic prophecies are better known than this, chiefly because of its quotation in Matthew 21 and John 12 as being fulfilled by the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem on what we traditionally call Palm Sunday. The next verse, verse 10, tells how this righteous yet gentle king will bring peace to the nation and extend his rule over the entire earth. So, I read that in the context of these two chapters, chapters 9 and 10 that we'll look at today. And the title of the message today is, The Lord is My Shepherd. Does that ring any bells? Not usually in Zechariah though, right? So... Um, there have been some pretty tumultuous events to take place in the world in the last week. Um, there's been a report released concerning the Southern Baptist Convention's Executive Committee and their mishandling of numerous instances of sexual impropriety and abuse. Several other leaders within the SBC were named during the course of this investigation as having had inappropriate or abusive relationships. And then, as uh, many in Southern Baptist circles were lamenting this dreadful information shared in what was a 300-page report, which was released a week ago today. And if this is news to you, um, it's in every major news outlet. This is not the kind of publicity the Southern Baptist Convention wants. Uh, because it's true, most of it, and it's it's just wrong, and it, and most most of all, it gives Jesus a bad name. 
That's the worst part of it. So people in Southern Baptist circles are lamenting that, all that going around, and then at the same time, midweek, an 18-year-old boy in Texas decides to attempt to take his grandmother's life and then drive to a school and jump a fence and go in a door and start to shoot people. Nineteen children and two teachers lost their lives. And it was not uh, law enforcement's finest hour either. And uh, a lot of things wrong with all these situations. And here's the saddest part. Those two events that just happened within the last seven days are added to a laundry list of other events similar in nature. And so it doesn't take much research or much paying attention to realize we are in a mess in this world. This world is broken in so many ways. And people seem to be uh, willing, without being asked, to offer opinions on, well, what's the solution? You know, there's lots of, lots of solutions being offered. Some would say we need more guns. Some would say we need to take away the guns. Some would say we need better trained police. Some would say we need to get rid of the police. So, you know, it, there's people on, on all these different fronts offering these things, and it, and it seems like uh, everybody's missing the main point. We need Jesus. The world needs Jesus. And, and I don't know if you realize this, but when Cain killed Abel, there were no gun stores. He used a rock. You know why? Because he didn't have a gun. But you know what prompted him to do it? The sin in his heart. It, it's his heart. That... that the. The, the heart of man is... Read Jeremiah 17. The heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can understand it? We've got a lot of problems. And they have a common solution. We can talk about symptoms and we can talk about other measures that can be taken and some of which may be helpful, maybe not. But you can't keep putting band-aids on a problem without addressing the root cause of the problem. And the root cause of the problem is this world is lost without Christ. That is the root cause of every one of the social ills that we experience. A lack of Christ. You know, people want to say, and this is a little bit of a, an introductory rant, and I apologize. No, I don't. I don't apologize. Many people in the culture will ask, where was God when this was taking place? Where was God when this was happening? Well, we've been systematically trying to kick God out of everything for the last 60 years. And this is what we're left with. So we shouldn't be surprised the state of the world when we don't want anything to do with God or His Word. So we come to this Scripture today and I pray we will see very clearly that we are not without hope. Restoration is coming. But it's coming in a very specific way. Through a specific person. And this passage, I believe, will highlight that even more clearly for us. So let me read 
Uh, let me read our passage today. It's, uh, we'll start in Zechariah 9 and go through the end of chapter 10. And I pray that we'll see a good shepherd as we read. Chapter 9, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, through though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of all her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall, they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people, for like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on, it, on His land. For how great is His goodness, and how great His beauty! Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. Ask rain from the Lord in the season of the spring rain, from the Lord who makes the storm clouds, and He will give them showers of rain to everyone the vegetation in the field. For the household gods utter nonsense, and the diviners see lies. They tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders for the Lord of hosts cares for His flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like His majestic steed in battle. From Him shall come the cornerstone, from Him the tent peg, from Him the battle bow, 
from him every ruler, all of them together. They shall be like mighty men in battle, trampling the foe in the mud of the streets. They shall fight because the Lord is with them, and they shall put to shame the riders on horses. I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. I will bring them back because I have compassion on them, and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. For I am the Lord their God, and I will answer them. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. I will whistle for them and gather them in, for I have redeemed them. And they shall be as many as they were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me. And with their children they shall live and return. I will bring them home from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria. And I will bring them to the land of Gilead and to Lebanon till there is no room for them. He shall pass through the sea of troubles and strike down the waves of the sea. And all the depths of the Nile shall be dried up. The pride of Assyria shall be laid low. And the scepter of Egypt shall depart. I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in His name, declares the Lord. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that this word we've read would be clear to us. You'd help us understand. And then as we see our shepherd, I pray you would help us respond to His voice for Your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, Amen. This passage, if you if you could hear it, I, I feel like as we read through that, there were moments when you could sense something going on. You could sense a picture of what God is doing and what He says He's going to do. There are four things in these two chapters that I believe will point us toward Jesus. See, one thing that's difficult for us to grasp sometimes is that when we're reading the Old Testament, it's not detached from Jesus. The Old Testament is pointing us toward Jesus, especially the prophets. But the entire Bible is meant to point us to Jesus. And so here, especially when we come across this messianic prophecy, Zechariah 9.9, and we, we see this picture of Palm Sunday, hundreds of years before it happened, talking about Jesus. Everything in the text is pointing us to Jesus. So I want to talk about these four things that are in these, this text here today of what does Jesus as our shepherd do? How does He relate to His people. Number one, Jesus saves His children. Jesus saves His children. When you look at the, the end of chapter 9, really, after that Messianic prophecy, from verse 14 to verse 17, here, here's the interesting thing about chapter 9. There's some, there's some real world history going on here. Because in verses 1 through 8, what's being described is this invasion of Alexander the Great. You remember that name? Alexander the Great? And so verses 1 through 8 is alluding to that invasion. Then you have this messianic prophecy thrown right in the middle, verse 9 and 10. And then from verse 11 to verse 17, we're talking about 
this group of people called the Maccabeans, and they're um, rushed toward, uh, toward Greece. And verse 13 is kind of the clue to that. So you see this revolt against the Greek armies by these Maccabean people. And so you have 1 through 8, 11 through 17, but then right in the middle is this messianic prophecy which would occur after both of those events, which is so odd because if you were to think, well, is this in chronological order? No, but it is in theological order because God is trying to point us to some things that are going to happen. So when we think about, for example, verse 16. Look how verse 16 begins. On that day, the Lord their God will save them. And if we understand that all the Scripture is pointing us to Jesus, then we might ask when we read verse 16, well, how exactly is the Lord their God going to save them? Well, He's going to send His Son named Jesus. And all of that unfolds as part of the plan of redemption. How do we get saved? It's because of Jesus. So the coming of Christ described in verse 9. Verse 10 describes how this Messiah is going to bring peace and He's going to extend His rule over the whole earth. And so here's what's interesting about this whole chapter, all of chapter 9. When these two events happened, Jerusalem and the surrounding Jewish cities were spared while many, if not most, of the Gentile cities were destroyed. That's a a provision, a salvation, if you will. God is saving His people, even in the midst of craziness. Chaos, even. So, what is the application for us? Jesus saves His children, even in the midst of chaos in this broken, sinful world. We, We can't think about an invasion of someone like Alexander the Great and a revolt of the Maccabeans against the Greek armies. We can't think of all this military struggle and all the bloodshed and not see the fact that God is still working actively to protect His people. Because that's exactly what He does for us. Jesus saves His children even while there's chaos everywhere. Number two. Jesus provides for His children. When you get to chapter 10, just the first two verses, you see this image of God sending what the people need. Verse 1, He'll give them showers of rain. He'll provide for them, everyone, vegetation in the field. And then there's this contrast. Jesus provides for His children. You know who does not provide? Idols. Look at verse 2. Household idols utter nonsense. Can you imagine putting your trust in a a carved image or a a man-made image? See, the tricky thing in our culture today that I suspect may not have been as tricky in biblical times, although... The human heart's the same, so maybe it was. But the tricky thing in our culture is that idolatry can take so many different forms. It's not just, well, I'm going to carve this image of this person or this deity. I'm going to carve it, put it on this table and like a shrine, and I'm going to worship that as my God. That is a form of idolatry. But you know what else is? 
money, possessions, prestige, reputation, job advancement, family, relationship. Um, I mean, the list just is endless. Because you know what idolatry is at its core? It's taking something that's not God and putting it in God's place. Treating something that is not God as if it were God. And that means everything in my life revolves around this. And there's only one person who qualifies to be in that position. And it's Jesus. And so anything that steps in front of that, it doesn't have to be something bad. And that's the dangerous thing about idolatry. You can take a... I heard another pastor say this years ago. You can take a good thing and make it a God thing, then it becomes a bad thing. Because there's only one God. Anybody remember the Ten Commandments? You know what commandments one and two are? You shall have no other gods before me. Number two, you shall not create for yourself any idol out of you know wood, whatever, stone, whatever. One God, no idols. That's top on the list. And by the way, if we get those two right, the rest of them kind of flow pretty well. Because those two are the most difficult ones. Jesus provides for His children. So we struggle with idolatry. It's a perpetual problem. But think about these other parts of Scripture that remind us who God is. Philippians 4, verse 19. My God will supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. My God will supply. Not an idol, not some other source on earth, some other man-made thing. God will supply my needs. Because He's got everything, right? You, you heard the old phrase it's from Scripture. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Well, He owns the hills too. He owns everything. He can supply your needs. How about Second Peter verse one, or chapter 1, verse 3? 2 Peter 1, verse 3. His divine power is granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. All things. Not just a few things. All things. Jesus provides for His children. Number three, Jesus purifies His children. Chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 especially, the last part or the middle part. The Lord of hosts cares for His flock. Verse 4, from Him shall come the cornerstone. See, uh, God consistently punished leaders, His earthly leaders of His people, for poor leadership. All throughout the Old Testament. If, if someone was leading God's people and they did a poor job or they were sinful in their leadership, God punished them severely. That's the consistent story of Scripture. And so you even see that here in the text. When you look at verse 3, My anger is hot against the shepherds. I will punish the leaders. You know why? Look at the next phrase. Because the Lord of hosts cares for His flock. 
God cares for His people, therefore He is um, paying attention to the leadership and He's purifying His children. Verse 4, He's going to send the cornerstone. And why is that really? God's desire is for us to be holy. You're to be holy because I'm holy, right? That's what, that's what God says, okay? And, and you look at places like Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. It says, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And so to that end, He's going to send the cornerstone, verse 4. It's, it's also in other parts of the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 28 verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes will not be disturbed. Or Psalm 118. Psalm 118 verse 22, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You know who that is? It's talking about the the religious establishment, they rejected Christ as the Messiah. The stone the builders rejected, he's become the chief cornerstone. You know what a cornerstone is in a building? You walk outside this building. It's meant to be commemorative, but the cornerstone in a building is the thing that holds the whole foundation together. That's Jesus. He holds everything together. So the Father sent the Son to be the cornerstone of His church, the body of Christ. And then Jesus went to the cross to purify the church, which is the body of Christ. You know what's interesting? Yesterday, I was, uh, I was at a wedding. I thought I was at a wedding. I was officiating the wedding. And in the midst of that moment, we talked a little bit about Ephesians chapter 5, because that's the largest, most definitive scripture about marriage. And so I read portions of that. We talked to the bride and groom about it briefly and because we had already talked about it extensively you know, uh, beforehand. But do you know what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, when the comparison is made between the husband loving the wife and Christ loving the church? L- listen to this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did He do that? Listen to the description. He gave Himself up for her so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That is a completely selfless, sacrificial love. The best interest of the other party is what's the priority. So when Christ loves the church, which is His people, He's loving us, giving Himself for us for the purpose of making us pure, holy, blameless, without blemish, without spot, or any such thing. Sanctified. Presented to Him. That's what Jesus did for the church. Jesus purifies His children. Finally, number four. Jesus 
gathers His children. The last paragraph of this chapter, of this text. It's so interesting. Verse 8, I will whistle for them and gather them in. It's almost like you're, you're calling your, your dogs to come back to the house, right? But, but you know what that really speaks to? Why would a pet respond to a whistle? Real simple. They recognize the person whistling. That's, that's all. Nothing special. Any number of people could call your name to come home as a child. You're out playing. You're having fun. You're in another world. Any number of people could call your name. But when your mama calls your name, it's a totally different story. You recognize that voice. And you recognize at the same time the consequences of not heeding the call. Right? Jesus is gathering His children. You know where else you see this in Scripture? Over in John's Gospel, you hear what Jesus says about His children, about how we know Him and how we respond to Him. John 10, verse 27. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hand. That's how much Jesus gathers His children, cares for His children, provides for His children, purifies His children. God manifested His presence among His people in significant ways, especially when they were in the wilderness, you know, a fire and a, and a cloud and the presence of the Lord in the, in the Holy of Holies in the temple and there was never any confusion about whether or not God was present with His people. And Jesus promises to be with His children at all times, in all circumstances. You remember the end of the Great Commission? Matthew 28, verse 20. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Over in Hebrews chapter 13, and verse 5, He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. His presence is with us. He gathers us to His presence. And that's why, frankly, verse 12, the last verse in our passage, that's why verse 12 says, I will make them strong in the Lord and they shall walk in His name. Presence. Jesus gathers His children to Himself. He even said so in John 14. Do you remember when He uttered those, those, those profound words when He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am there you may be also. And remember, they asked Him, well, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And that's when He says in verse 6, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Me. Presence. Jesus 
wants His children with Him. So, what do we do with this? How do we conclude of how Jesus relates to us, how He is our shepherd? James Boyce wrote this sentence, this two sentences. Hasn't the Lord done each of these great things for us? He saved us by His death. He's provided for us, encourages us to come to Him in prayer, asking for anything we lack. He's purifying us. He's also gathering us from the farthest reaches of the world. The Lord is not merely the shepherd king of Israel. He's our shepherd. Unless we forget the familiar words. Just, just listen. Just listen to these words when I read. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is a really good shepherd. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from God's Word. For more information on Berlin Baptist Church, we invite you to explore our website at www.berlinchurchsc.org.